Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. The present times have been defined by a deadly pandemic, precarious geopolitical relations, and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. In this season of the Carnegie India podcast, we are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that India will confront in the coming decade. I'm your host Deep Pal, and this week we are diving deep into the situation in Afghanistan and what it means for India. The withdrawal of the United States and its NATO allies from Afghanistan has led to concerns over the Kabul government's ability to survive in the face of an aggressive Taliban onslaught. The peace process, which the U.S. had initiated between the Taliban and the Afghan government, has also stalled without achieving a settlement. While President Ghani has asserted that the government forces are prepared to meet the challenges, analysts remain pessimistic about the possibilities. In this episode of Interpreting India. we try to analyze the present situation in afghanistan what is the situation on the ground in afghanistan is there any prospect for still reaching a peace deal and finally what does taliban's growing influence as well as the role in afghanistan mean for india joining us today to discuss the developing situation is thomas radek and avinash paliwal thomas is a co-founder and co-director of the afghanistan analyst network he has been working on afghanistan for over 25 years and has spent 10 of these years in the country he has held numerous positions in afghanistan including as a gdr diplomat in kabul as political affairs officer for two united nations missions in the country and as a deputy to the eu special representative for afghanistan avinash is senior lecturer in international relations and deputy director of the soas south asia institute prior to this he taught defense studies at kings college london and was the defense academy postdoctoral fellow at the regional security research center at kings his book my enemy's enemy india and afghanistan from the soviet invasion to the us withdrawal details india's political and economic presence in afghanistan from the last decade of the cold war to the us led war on terror thomas avinash welcome to interpreting india delighted to have both of you with us today Thomas, if I can start with you, you have spent a number of years on ground in Afghanistan. You have been watching the process closely. So, give us a bit of a background. What is the situation on ground now that most foreign troops have left? The U.S. has vacated Bagram Air Base. Where does the ANSF stand vis-a-vis the Taliban? Well, in the moment, they are uh, in a defensive mode. They have a couple of days ago said they will switch into offensive, but uh, I think that's a more uh, morale-boosting uh, message. Uh, the Taliban have been uh, on the march forward. Uh, they have uh, taken uh, probably around uh, 100 districts of uh, 388. um haven't kept all of them the nsf were able to take back uh, some of them but uh, all in all um uh, the taliban are have the uh, have the initiative right uh, if i can quickly follow up with that thomas uh, now what are the prospects for a negotiated settlement between the taliban and the kabul government because as you mentioned the taliban has still made gains and and the the government forces have managed to take some of that back we know that there's been a lack of progress in the us broker peace talks beyond the doha peace process do you see an alternate path for a settlement that can be arrived at well in the moment um 
there, the Doha talks have not been called off, uh, so they are stalling. Uh, where I don't see perspective is uh, in talks between Taliban and the Afghan government. The Afghan government, um, the Taliban have consistently rejected to talk to the Afghan government and only accepted uh, to have representatives of the Afghan government involved in uh, a broader delegation, which was called uh, the Delegation of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and includes also some uh, representative of some other uh, factions, part of the government or part of the political system uh, in Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban are pursuing a, a double path, uh, military advances and uh, negotiations. Uh, I interpret their uh, military offensive uh, in the moment as a reaction to the unilateral postponement of the end date of the withdrawal by uh, U.S. President uh, Biden to show that they have enough military clout to be able to take over Afghanistan. Uh, but since they have not uh, actually attacked or uh, seriously attacked, uh, with one uh, exception, probably uh, provincial capitals, and, and the exception was Kalianauen uh, in the northwestern province of Badris, which is not a strategic important uh, province uh, yesterday. Um, I think they're exerting pressure to get negotiations started according to their own terms. Um, there is not uh, So they have the option to go back to Doha and talk to that uh, delegation of the Islamic Republic uh, of Afghanistan, now from a much uh, stronger position, not only because of their own offensive, but also because of the withdrawal of the Western troops, which is almost complete, as we uh, uh, heard a few days ago from the US side. Um, but they're apparently also exploring, or other countries in the region are exploring uh, parallel paths, but uh, that's just on the first few yards, I would say, um, uh, like the meeting uh, that uh, was hosted or are still being hosted um, by the Iranian government in Tehran uh, currently, where also the Taliban are present and the broader delegation uh, from Kabul and the Taliban again have said, no, we're not talking with the governments, but they will talk in a format which also has existed before uh, in the conferences uh, in Moscow, for example. So that's uh, just starting in the moment. And I think uh, as the Taliban are not only militarily uh, in the initiative, um, they also are kind of diplomatically because they can set the terms much more uh, uh, easily than uh, before. Um, it's just starting after the last US soldier has left Afghanistan, I would say. In fact, uh, it's interesting that you, you brought in the, the question of the regional powers, and I will come back to that and we'll have a a broader discussion on that in a minute. But before that, Avinash, if I can come to you about, about the prospects of peace, where, where do you see the process right now? And what are the options in front of the two sides? First of all, thank you for having me here in this podcast uh, this afternoon. And again, the prospects of peace really depends on who and how the terms of peace will be or are being defined. And as Thomas uh, very clearly laid out, the Taliban is setting the terms of peace. What terms it sees as being beneficial for itself, I think, in the immediate future are likely to be asserted much more firmly. Whether, you know, let me just unpack the idea, the concept of peace, perhaps here, whether we are looking at a ceasefire, uh, which perhaps would eventually lead to a broader kind of serious negotiation between whichever stakeholders there may be involved 
in the post-cease file negotiations, you know, and maybe perhaps not all of the Afghan government stakeholders would be in that umbrella negotiating with the Taliban. Uh, we have not seen any signs of a serious cease are being imposed by the Taliban at the moment. They they have the military initiative just to kind of, you know, equal what Thomas has already said. And there is no compelling reason for them to give the up that very uh, powerful tool that they have demonstrated in terms of you know their 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 will to use coercion to to come to power whether that leads to a complete kind of onslaught of military takeover of kabul in the coming months or perhaps a year or so still needs to be seen so i would i would i'm i'm a little pessimistic about serious prospects for peace i think we are looking at a moment of conflict transitioning from one kind of a conflict and a very powerful actor, which is the United States, kind of taking a step back. But the Afghan wars, so-called Afghan wars, the internal conflicts in the country will continue in different shapes and forms. In fact, uh, uh, Thomas, you know, uh, the Taliban have been talking about embracing a new form of governance, right, which would be different from their earlier stint in the 1990s, in case it comes into some form of a power-sharing arrangement. Do you mind what would an arrangement such as that uh, look like, or would it be prudent to expect only some form of coexistence at the moment? That's very difficult to say. Uh, the Taliban have not been very specific on uh, what they are planning with uh, respect to a future political system in Afghanistan. I mean, it's clear that uh, their favorite option would be re-establishment of the Islamic Emirate. I mean, they call themselves uh, officially the Islamic Emirate uh, uh, of Afghanistan. The head of their movement is the Amir al-Mu'minin, which is a religiously connoted uh, title. Um, but they also have understood and also have uh, signaled that they have understood um, that they're not alone in the country, that there are other political forces. But we also need to look at uh, uh, those forces. And, and when we look at the political system in Afghanistan, there are uh, a lot of uh, parties and factions which uh, also could be characterized as uh, Islamists. So actually about this form of government with them, there wouldn't probably be a too deep dispute, although they reject the term emirate because they in their days, they called themselves Islamic State or Lati Islami. Um, and uh, the current uh, state in Afghanistan is called the Islamic Republic. I mean, so there's no one who would uh, uh, publicly dispute uh, the term Islamic. Um, and uh, when we also look into the agreement of uh, February 2020 concluded between the US and the Taliban in, in Doha, Qatar, um, they speak there about the new Islamic uh, government, whether that's now an Islamic uh, emirate, uh, Daulat, uh, republic, or, or something else, we will see. That's also not the most important part. Uh, the most important part of it. Um, what is clear, it will be based uh, uh, mainly, or it's a judicial framework, will be based on uh, on on Sharia. And uh, uh, therefore, we also need to look at the second level, not only at the state level, but also how. Let's call it Taliban governance uh, uh, plays out already currently because they control large parts of the country or will uh, play out uh, in the future uh, on, on the ground. And my organization, Afghanistan Analyst Network, has uh, looked into several districts over the several uh, uh, previous years. And uh, what we see is uh, not a very concise uh, picture 
of uh, uh, the Taliban having moved on from the very repressive uh, form of uh, regime they had in place up to 2001 uh, in some places, while in others they are uh, more, um, let's say, accommodating towards the population, uh, giving or, or, or hinting at the possibility that they have learned that they cannot govern against the entire population, uh, which uh, also is reflected by the signaling, uh, for example, to the large Shia minority of the Hazaras and others in Afghanistan, um, that they're not anti-Shia and, and things like that. So um, how that will be uh, will play out uh, is a matter of the future. What we already see now is that, of course, even that degree of political freedom, which very often is just on the paper in, in Kabul and the government-controlled areas, does not exist at all in Taliban-controlled areas. There's no opposition. It will be very difficult for civil society to operate and even for NGOs who are just, let's call it, a technical development project that's only accepted if it's on the terms of the Taliban. Avinash, kind of same question to you. I mean, what, what is, is there clarity on Taliban role in governance might look like? I mean, do they have the kind of bandwidth or, or expertise beyond just controlling territory to actually govern these these territories with any any semblance of an organized government again there there is a sense among certain taliban figures that they would be able to govern and that you know the fact that in some of the taliban held territories they've had parallel court systems, they're trying to offer some service delivery, however repressive the, the modus operandi of that may be. But would, that is none of that is comparable to any modern nation state uh, as it operates elsewhere in other countries. So, uh, you know, this is something, again, the con- Afghanistan as a country has seen so much conflict over the last 40 years that governance as an idea, governance in practice has been difficult for for most parties, even for that matter, the the Republican camp, as we saw getting created in the post 9-11 context, has struggled to assert itself, has struggled with governance. There there has been some really acute endemic issues, whether it's corruption, whether it's uh, weak institutions, whether it's just inequitable distribution of of, service delivery and wealth. This is something that is going to hamper the the efforts of the Taliban as well. And this is, does not even venture into their worldviews on issues related to human rights and women's rights, which of course remain deeply repressive. The, the concern, and this is again, I, I would agree with Thomas here, right? There is a certain degree of, there is lack of clarity as to what they would actually, what change they would bring in their own behavior towards the citizen, citizenry. The kind of contract that they are hinting at, the Emirat format that they're hinting at is not something that, at least parts of the, the the Afghan elite, which have benefited over the past 20 years, are deeply comfortable with. It may or may not kind of translate into local acceptability across across the region, right? And there are different factors at play. Islam, religion is not the only factor. There is, there is you know, there is sectarianism, there is ethnic diversity, there's linguistic diversity. To rule a country as as diverse as Afghanistan with a singular sort of yardstick, whether it's uh, coming from certain religious codes that the Taliban abide by, or by any other format of governance that they might kind of perhaps create in the months to come, is likely to be very difficult for the Taliban, which essentially means that, you know, the, the prospect of peace or conflict will remain 
remain, uh, I mean, will remain hard, uh, low. I mean, it, 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 we are looking at a situation where conflict is likely to kind of uh, take a different shape and form rather than, you know, leading to some sort of a settled peace or some sort of a negotiation between various parties, whether it's in certain regions of the country or definitely at the national level. Uh, it seems difficult also for these reasons of lack of clarity about issues related to governance and the broader kind of weak social contract, as we know, in other nation states. Uh, Avinash, staying on with the Taliban for a minute, you know, there's been a lot of chatter about the need for India to engage them. But as we know, the Taliban are not just one cohesive unit, right? A number of factions led by prominent leaders who have their own agendas, all of who work under the, the overall umbrella. Now, among these, there are these factions like the Haqqani Network who are known for their antagonistic view of India, Indian government and so on. So given all of this, what, what are India's best options? Do you think, do you see India meaningfully engaged with the Taliban in any way? And in fact, does India have anything to offer at all that would make the Taliban want to engage? The, just to re, just to iterate this, the, the, some a very basic point about India's presence in Afghanistan. First, India has never been a central actor in Afghan processes, right? Political processes panning out inside Afghanistan. Um, its stakes, in terms of its economic stakes, its political stakes, have been high relative to the kind of you know uh, to to what other regional powers, if not the great powers, which have been engaged in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it, it over the past two decades, we have seen a substantial amount of investment uh, in terms of aid and assistance, even though it it kind of you know really is very minimal if you compare it to the kind of money that the Americans or the Western you know organizations have put in, but it's still substantial by Indian standards. Now, the key driver of India's Afghanistan policy, and this, I would say, has been largely consistent since uh, since partition in 1947 between India and, Paki- of, of India and Pakistan, uh, has been to strike some sort of a strategic balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And this was simply keeping in mind India's own rivalry with Pakistan, of course. The, the structural imbalance of power between Pakistan and Afghanistan, as we see today, was not always the case, definitely not in the 50s and 60s. And since the Soviet invasion, of course, the this whole balance of power got completely dislocated uh, eventually by the end of the Soviet invasion in favor of Pakistan, especially in the 90s. Um, India has tried to manipulate resources by external powers, right? Whether it was earlier the Soviet Union, then during the 90s in collaboration with the Russians and the Iranians, definitely with the Americans and the larger NATO umbrella since post-2001 to manipulate those external resources to strike this balance between these two countries, despite their kind of structural asymmetries. And a central feature of that policy has been to keep alive and perhaps active uh, a critical Afghan public opinion as far as the Pakistan question goes. And that does not come very difficult, given given the kind of really tormented relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan itself. Now, when this external resource set, military resource set, leaves, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, as as it is being uh, noted, uh, when the American troops have left uh, Bagram finally, this raises question for India as to how it would continue to pursue its desire for that balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan and avoid the chance of uh, Pakistan coming to entirely or substantially dominate the body politic of Afghanistan, because that's what India does not see in its interest. That is a central question. 
Coming to your point of this chatter about India engaging the Taliban, that's exactly the source of this chatter. If the Taliban, as we have noted, is coming to power uh, and is likely to be a very central feature of Afghanistan's body politic, regardless of its political kind of view and its misogyny, can India afford to not have any sort of a channel open with that kind of an entity? It's it's basic kind of real polity question. And the answer to that increasingly seems to be no. And this is, and it's getting increasingly difficult for India to avoid the Taliban. Also, because all other regional powers, including India's allies, whether it's, you know, traditional allies, especially Iran, as far as Afghanistan question goes, all of them are engaging with the Taliban, perhaps not with all factions of the Taliban, but definitely with uh, very powerful leaders and also ground commanders of the Taliban. So I think that has propelled this debate in India to kind of open some sort of a channel. And as we have seen in recent days, recent weeks, cautiously over the past few months, India has uh, opened the, opened a channel with at least the leadership, uh, Taliban leadership in Doha, whether they are effective or not in terms of, you know, their decisions being translated on the ground is a different matter. But India has shown willingness to talk to the Taliban. The most prominent shift in India's policy recently has been the public, the level of comfort that India has shown in letting this information be out in public. Every time before this moment, and when India would engage discreetly with the Taliban, whether it was in 2010, 11, even in 2018, there were some kind of feelers and some kind of outreach. India would not want this information to be out in public or be associated with that kind of a conversation at all. That has shifted. You can see kind of, you know, the, the diplomatic kind of sand shifting really. Um, even external affairs uh, minister Jay Shankar being in Iran when Tehran is hosting a meeting with the Taliban, going, taking multiple trips to Doha, uh, where uh, alleged, I mean, he did not, according to the external affairs ministry, he did not meet the Taliban directly, but Indian officially, quite, officials quietly reached out to the leadership. These are substantial signs. Last point on this, Deep, you, you mentioned this whole idea of the Taliban having, you know, not being a monolith, having various factions, especially the Haqqani network, which is very closely associated and uh, chaperoned, has historically been chaperoned by the uh, by the Pakistani intelligence, the ISI, uh, which, of course, India sees as an enemy entity. Now, this is this is the hope, perhaps, and this is the calculation, perhaps, in Indian mind, in Indian official mind, to be able to exploit Taliban's internal fissures which exist, which have been noted, but which may not be as prominent today, but may become more pronounced if and when the Taliban comes to power. And that is simply because once this insurgent force comes and has the burdens of governance and administration, their calculus would be different. The way they assert their nationalism, right? And it's not just religious nationalism. It's also kind of ethnic Afghan. Perhaps in some factions of the Taliban, this may or may, this is a debated issue, even Pashtun nationalism. There is this yearning in Delhi, but also in capitals like Tehran to capitalize on these ideas, these sensibilities within the Taliban's leadership, whether it's in the military domain or the political domain, to ensure that there is either some sort of inclusivity in terms of a 
you know, some site of political inclusivity of all the different forces that Thomas very helpfully outlined earlier, uh, and not go for a very kind of coercive takeover of Kabul, but also to respect their interests at the end of the day. You don't want neither Iran nor India, nor even perhaps Moscow, would want a Sunni Islamist, Pakistan-controlled, Taliban-led Emirate in Afghanistan. So this is where, these are the questions which all these regional powers are kind of urgently uh, debating and dealing with. And this is the context in which India has tried to kind of have some sort of a channel. Haqqani network will certainly not be one of those factions with which India would ever engage. Um, but the idea is to shape, the, to reshape the calculus of the Haqqanis within their own ecosystem of the Taliban itself and complicate Pakistan's strategy and not let them have a neat victory, so to say, uh, in, in, in that sense. Right. I mean, that's, that's really uh, useful to, to know and understand. But that's the calculus from Afghanistan's end and also possibly from the end of uh, other regional or global powers that, that have a stake in Afghanistan or at least uh, want Afghanistan to be able to uh, move forward uh, in this, from this inflection point, but uh, what about what about when we look at the issue from Pakistan's point of view? Because you know the entire issue of uh, strategic depth and so on. Where does Afghanistan feature in the India-Pakistan dyad at this point in time? Pakistan is very central to this whole issue. In fact, I would say for every regional power, I mean the the the, the you know the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, a lot of it has to to do with the Pakistani role and this kind of interventionism that the Pakistani security establishment has demonstrated the will to pursue for decades. Right now, I am not one who believes that Pakistan is remote controlling the Taliban. These are grounded movements which have their own dynamics, which have their own logic, which have their own interests. But if you're looking at, even if you're using the trans, like, lens of you know, a transactional nature between a principal and an agent where a state is supporting an insurgent, uh, external insurgent, insurgency, I would say Pakistan is dominating, if not, if, you, know, you know, dominating this conversation with the Taliban being the superior power, uh, but it does, not rem it does not have absolute total control on Taliban decision-making. That's one thing. And that thing, that desire, now this is where it becomes a bit more complex. I would... I mean, I would, you know, bring attention to the recent developments that have been taking place in Pakistan, uh, where the chief of the Pakistani intelligence and the chief of the Pakistani army, General Bajwa, General Faiz Ahmed, have been giving long briefings to cross-party parliamentarians about the situation in Afghanistan, about their uh, Pakistan's own policy, about Pakistan's relation with India, and of course, the Kashmir issue. And the second iteration of that briefing is yet to come, I think, it's scheduled for 15th of July. And this is very significant. It's not unprecedented because this has happened before, but very significant. There are twin concerns here. On one hand, Pakistani, the hardliners within Pakistan security establishment do feel accomplished, do feel vindicated that, uh, that they have been able to kind of, you know, there is victory on the anvil. There are pro-Pakistan uh, elements who are likely to take power in some, some shape or form in, the, in, in Kabul. And that would lead you know, to some sort of economic opening to Central Asia in alliance with the Chinese, but also a drastic reduction in what Pakistan sees as inimical Indian presence on the ground in Afghanistan. That is a larger sense you know, which we can feel uh, 
quite clearly coming out of Pakistan at the moment. But there is another strand of deep concern emerging from this 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 moment of uh, victory, and that concern emerges from that that sense where uh, there is a very clear knowledge in Pakistani security establishment that they do not have total control of the, over the Taliban. And once the Taliban is actually out, not based off, out of Pakistan, you know, the Quetta Shura is not running out of Quetta Balochistan, but is running either out of Kandahar or, or you know, has representatives from in Kabul, they would have a very different calculation. They'll have a different regional and international outlook. They would need support for governance and administration. They would need international aid. They would want to have international legitimacy. And that would automatically reduce the salience of Pakistan, if not entirely, to a certain degree. And that makes the Pakistani leadership slightly jittery because it has occurred in simultaneous kind of rise of the Tehreek-i Taliban Pakistan, which the which Rawal Pindi was confident it has it had been able to kind of completely disintegrate that kind of insurgency as part of the Zarbeya's operation that it began in 2014. Clearly not. You're looking at a moment where a Sunni Islamist kind of movement is likely to come to power. You enabled, in a strategic sense, its victory, but it continues to maintain very intimate ideological and practical material relations with those movements which are inimical to yourself, which is the Tehreek-i Taliban Pakistan, right? Um, And also, uh, the Al-Qaeda is not wiped out. It's very clear that the Al Qaeda is deeply engaged uh, in these in these regions. It's very active. Uh, you know whether or not the Islamic State of Khorasan province is going to be a huge actor in this uh, remains remains unclear. It hasn't become that potent militarily or politically, but the Al Qaeda remains a very powerful glue in term in that sort of insurgent landscape. Both, you know, in an Afghan and a Pakistani context, so there is serious concern in Pakistan about a potential blowback of 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 Taliban coming to power in Kabul using coercion or just militarily taking over Kabul. It is not entirely in their interest. So, even from a Pakistani perspective, I think today there is an increasing sense of having some sort of a negotiation, having some sort of a diversity in terms of the political, um, the body politic as it as it might emerge in Kabul in the coming months. Whether it happens or not needs to be seen. And a lot of this depends on the perceptions or the misperceptions of powers that be, right? Uh, to what extent Chinese guarantees help in, in a huaging Pakistani concerns at a strategic but also at a tactical level. These are questions to which we don't have clear answers, but are definitely shaping Pakistani behavior in real time. Thomas, if, if I can have your point on that, both on how much control or hold Pakistan will continue to have over Afghanistan as it moves forward from here, but also on the question of the Taliban factions or or the coherence on that entire issue. Yeah, thank you very much. Let me come back uh, to that a little bit. Um, First, I think you, we need to, to, in order to understand the Taliban, we need to understand that uh, that is a kind of a dualistic principle uh, governing uh, their behavior and uh, operations and so on. In a sense, the Taliban is a grassroots movement that has grown from from the grassroots, uh, from the bottom, and uh, only re-centralized again uh, in 2006, seven. Eight when the what's called the Quetta Shura, the leadership council, the Rahbari Shura, uh, uh, re-emerged as a 
body which uh, you needed to to count on. Um, I mean, the Taliban re-emerged after 2001 from remnants of the pre-2000, uh, pre-intervention, uh, pre pre-2001 uh, Taliban movement, which had uh, militarily basically been defeated uh, and uh, profited uh, from, uh, let's call it the, the wrong strategy um, of the West in Afghanistan, which included uh, their alliance, their, their uh, uncritical alliance with Afghan warlords, um, kind of turning a blind eye to uh, parts of the government and the administration being involved in uh, drug smuggling, um, being uh, deeply corrupt and, and getting more and more corrupt and actually feeding it, uh, which brought the Taliban back in, in to the fray and then allowed them to, to reunite. In that sense, it's a very diverse uh, movement and um, uh, it's based on, it's very localized, uh, based on local recruitment and what I don't see is really factions inside the, of the Taliban. I think factions mean that there's some uh, political debate uh, ongoing between different parts of a movement or a party which I do not see uh, that strongly. Uh, the Taliban even also compared to many other political forces in Afghanistan have uh, shown an enormous cohesiveness uh, uh, actually and when we look at uh, how they deal uh, uh, with the talks in Doha, but also with uh, governing those areas they have under control in Afghanistan, or how they are conducting the current fighting in Afghanistan. I just uh, talked yesterday to someone in the southeast, which is uh, the stronghold of the Haqqani network. I mean, people know who belongs to which network or uh, uh, within the Taliban, but in, in practice, you don't see an, uh, a difference. They all uh, work for the same the same aim and uh, maybe even the Haqqani network is a little bit uh, overblown in the attention we all uh, give to it because it has actually a very narrow local basis not even the tribe the leadership comes from the Zadran tribe of the Pashtuns um, is kind of uh, fully behind them I mean they're very strong uh, anti-Haqqani anti-Taliban forces also uh, in that tribe. What makes it strong indeed is their old relationship uh, uh, with Pakistan. But that goes both for the Haqqani network and for the Taliban uh, uh, in general. They're not ten dancing to the tunes uh, Pakistan is playing all the time, or maybe even not most of the time. When they were in power, there were strong disagreements between them. And I think uh, what for, uh, what's important for the Pakistanis is that also the Taliban, as any other political force in Afghanistan, has not recognized the, the Durant line, the, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And that's seen by Pakistan as a vital threat for, for its uh, own existence. And uh, that's why, I mean, there is not a full marriage or full confidence uh, between uh, the Taliban um, and uh, Pakistan. They also have become, in the Taliban, I mean, have become ethnically much more diverse. I mean, when you look into the north, where a large part of the current uh, offensive is uh, ongoing, many of the fighters and also many of the commanders are from the uh, local ethnic minorities. The Uzbek, the Aymak, the Tajik, the Sunni Hazara. They're also Sunni Hazaras in Afghanistan, a small group. But anyway, they also have uh, made some inroads using uh, local conflict into the Shia Hazara community. You know, not very deeply, but uh, uh, visibly. And that also brings us to <clears throat> the way 
that question we have discussed earlier, the way we should expect the, the Taliban to govern when they're back at power, and I actually don't see a way uh, uh, around it. What we also have found when we looked into the districts is that um, this is not only the harsh regime uh, which uh, they had before 2001, but they also have learned. What they basically do is they co-opt existing government structures, particularly in the health and education system, and uh, make sure that those uh, institutions are continuing to run, actually financed uh, from uh, Kabul by uh, government money, which also is, of course, interested not to lose the grip completely on the schools and clinics, which are in Taliban-controlled areas. So there are some kind of unwritten, um, probably even written agreements uh, between Ministry of Education, Ministry of Public Health in Afghanistan, uh, and, the, and the Taliban, um, with the, the government sending the money, also sending the staff, and the Taliban making sure that they appear at work, because that was one of the uh, part of the corrupt system in Afghanistan, that you had many ghost clinics, ghost schools, you also have ghost police and army units, uh, meaning um, there are names on, on paper or structures on paper which are funded, but they don't exist in reality, and the local administrations, which belong to the government, uh, put the money into their own pocket. And that's what the Taliban are preventing from happening very much to the happiness of the local population, uh, which has not seen effective governments and then too much corruption over many decades. And uh, uh, they see the Taliban as a positive force cracking down on that. And that also brings us to that uh, to the question, how will they be able uh, to run Afghanistan as a whole when they're uh, back at power? Do they have the expertise? I don't think they need the expertise themselves, apart from the fact that also a lot of the young generation have joined the Taliban by now or sympathize with them. I mean, who's doing all the video clips and, and whatever? I mean, these are educated young people. And we know that even many students from universities uh, during <clears throat> their, uh, uh, when their term is over, uh, go to the Taliban uh, in summer and uh, uh, help them. So what the Taliban, I expect what the Taliban will do is they will co-opt the bureaucracy and the government apparatus, which exists both on the local level and also on the, on the national level when they're back uh, at power. So they don't need their own experts. Um, because also what for them is important is that Afghanistan is what they call a genuinely Islamic country. So they look, they are mainly interested in looking at that and leave the technical probably are ready to leave the technical uh, issues uh, uh, to the others um given that they have control over them and uh, i mean even the system uh, ironically the us uh, has been proposing in the, in the doha talks when the us and the taliban were still directly negotiating was about something like a quasi iranian system with a leadership con religious leadership council and of presiding over everything what is elected and uh, political, giving them the last word, like what's happening in Iran, where the uh, uh, leadership council uh, uh, sorts out who is a presidential candidate. And uh, we know that uh, a very narrow field uh, has emerged from that. And uh, if that system's also implemented in Afghanistan, we can imagine uh, how big uh, pluralism will be there. Uh, I think there will be some Islamist pluralism because the other former Mujahideen parts will be allowed to, to operate in that form, in, in one form or the other, um, but uh, not uh, in the broader sense that will be very, very difficult. But uh, I think um, we really need to take the Taliban seriously as a cohesive and, and quite politically astute uh, organization because they have achieved in the negotiations with the biggest power in the world in the US a victory. 
U.S. is withdrawing. Uh, it actually has failed in its intervention in Afghanistan. Um, and the Taliban, they wanted to uh, bomb into oblivion, uh, have uh, made a very impressive uh, comeback and will be in power again very soon. One more word on um, Al-Qaeda. Here I disagree a little bit. Uh, uh, Al-Qaeda still exists um, also in Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, with their branch uh, for the Indian subcontinent and so on. But I, I think also their impact is uh, overblown in the general uh, analysis. Uh, also here and there for, for political reasons, because there are a lot of governments uh, uh, who want to show that they are fighting terrorism and so on. And, and for that, they need, a, uh, need an, uh, an adversary. Um, my impression from Afghanistan is, from looking into that country for a long time, is that Al-Qaeda uh, there is not able to operate on its own anymore. The Taliban control Al-Qaeda and also the remnants of other groups which are there, including Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, the Uyghur uh, groups and so on. They are unable to move on their own. So what they can do is when the Taliban give a green light. And uh, we know that, uh, uh, for example, uh, the last leader of the Islamic uh, movement of Uzbekistan, uh, the son of Tar Yuldush, uh, who was killed, uh, um, was it earlier that year or last year? I'm, I apologize for uh, uh, in the moment not being able to come up with that, but uh, um, that he actually seems to have been killed uh, by the Taliban because he wanted to move out of their uh, uh, control. So. In that sense, uh, I think in the moment, and also for the for the time being, for the future, it's not in the interest of the Taliban if they want to come back uh, to rule Afghanistan to have groups like Al Qaeda uh, uh, running around in their country and threatening the world and undermining their regime again. I mean, they lost their emirate in two thousand one because they were not able to control Al Qaeda then, which was much more of an uh, unknown uh, entity and with uh, unknown capacities to hit. I think these capacities have uh, been destroyed to a large, large extent uh, in, in Afghanistan and uh, Al-Qaeda there, at least, is only a shadow of its uh, uh, former self and uh, the Taliban will be able to control it. Right, Thomas, if I, if I can push on with that entire question of whether we call them factions or groups within the Taliban, but I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but at the same time, I mean, when we look at, we talked about the Haqqani network earlier, but there's also uh, Mullah Brother. Uh, or, or there's uh, Suhail Shaheen, there's the Sanigzai, there's all, all of these people do seem to, uh, granted, they may eventually want to enter into some kind of a governance uh, model on Afghanistan, but the ways in which they want to get there, the partners that they, that they agree uh, uh, to associate with on their way there, the, the, the uh, acceptability, the relative acceptability of various partners or arrangements, right? That definitely... Uh, is uh, does does differ in in case of all of these people and as i said i i, I understand that that eventually the overall objective uh, uh may be the same but there there definitely are different ways in which they want to get there and there the different partners that they that they find acceptable and that would you would you agree that that does in some ways uh uh, uh present uh, questions or roadblocks in 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 the ways in which uh, this might this might roll out over the coming months I do not see that really myself, um, that they have um, different views on whom they should accept as a partner or not. 
Um, I think uh, the group in Doha, the office there with Mullah Baradar as the one of the three deputy leaders of the Taliban movement for political affairs is kind of a foreign ministry. And that foreign ministry is uh, controlled by the leadership council uh, of the Taliban, also mandated by them. So they are working on their behalf, not as a, a separate faction. And also the Taliban have reached out to uh, all factions in Afghanistan, all the former Mujahideen factions, probably also uh, also to, to um, some civil society actors when they were included in the Islamic Republic teams and in earlier conferences and so on. And there seems to be no disagreement within the Taliban whether to talk with them or not to talk with them. Where they have an agreement is that they don't accept the Afghan government as the Afghan government. And uh, they have made it very, very plain without directly saying so, that they want to get rid of President Ashraf Ghani. And um, on that, they're actually in agreement with the large part of the other factions in the Islamic Republic uh, delegation in, in, in Doha, with uh, Jamiat Party, uh, John Besh, which has fallen out with Ghani and, and so on. Um, they're all... And, 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 very particularly so former President Karzai, who also seems to have aspirations uh, for a future political role uh, uh, in Afghanistan. So there is also some practical issue on which uh, the Taliban and those factions can uh, agree on. Okay, uh, Avinash, if I, if I can have your thoughts on this. Let me you know, slightly disagree on this, this particular issue and acknowledge that this is something that is, you know, quite life and it's quite debated. So, you know, in the spirit of discussion, I, I would disagree, Thomas, a little bit on this aspect of utmost sort of unity in the Taliban as we know it. Now, I completely agree that on certain very critical decision uh, decisions, whether they accept or they don't accept the uh, the government in Kabul as legitimate, there is very clear unanimity on the fact that they don't. There is very clear kind of consensus within this ecosystem that they would like to see all foreign forces leave. There might be even consensus on a certain form of Islamic kind of idea of what Afghanistan should perhaps look like, broadly speaking, you know, although there have been debates on this in Doha, as you have hinted at. Now, I, I mean, recent history, there is evidence that you know, there were factions, especially let me go back to end July 2015, when the news broke of the death of Mullah Omar, who was for a long time the Amirul Mominin of the Taliban, right? A very centralizing figure for that matter. And that, I mean, allegedly he was he was dead two years before that, but the news got leaked in 2015, mid-2015. We saw uh, many factional fights within the Taliban uh, with different leaderships trying to kind of come up to the fore, assert themselves. Again, they, whether or not they agreed or disagreed on issues, on questions related to policy, as an insurgent force, not as someone who's governing, right? And this is a very important structural factor. Um, there were a lot of there was a lot of infighting, violent infighting. We saw the rise of Mullah Akhtar Mansur, who was also trying to kind of you know, uh, who was trying to distance or kind of have degenerate some sort of policy autonomy vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan itself by approaching the Iranian uh, secret services, the Quds Force, right, Soleimani at that point in time, uh, and trying to assert themselves. Yeah. For in leadership positions. And of course, at that point, Haqqani network, which might be very narrow, but very well endowed by the Pakistani intelligence services. And that's where the relationship of the page principal and the agent really, in a, from a conceptual theoretical st standpoint, comes in. These are not 
long histories. These, this is like over the past five, six years. I completely agree with you that since then, for a variety of reasons, also the fact that they sensed a lot of trepidation within Washington, D.C. to continue with the war that gave a lot of morale boost to the Taliban, uh, you know, Kader and people who are joining the Taliban in becoming somewhat cohesive. The Doha process kick-started in many ways that cohesion came or got translated into outcomes mostly because of, of external factors rather than internal will. Uh, it came into being and came into effect because the Americans were very determined to leave. They started negotiating under Trump and Trump was considered as somewhat a friendly sort of a, or, or, a, or not a friendly, friendly is the wrong term, a president who might deliver on this some very fundamental demand of the Taliban for the Americans to leave. Uh, and and this is also the moment when we see uh, Pakistani uh, security establishment quite firmly um, micromanaging with advisors on the ground in Afghanistan till today, the processes, uh, uh, these, these kind of discussions and generating that consensus. So I would slightly disagree that this is all organic, this is all internal, and that this is something that we, uh, you know, yes, as a, in effect, we have to accept it as, as the Taliban being a very important insurgent force, which, you know, as you said, showed a huge might power, it's really its place in some ways. And, you know, the failure of American interventionism could not be highlighted much more glaringly than a midnight, you know, uh, 3 a.m. exit without informing their wartime allies in Kabul. Having said all that, there is ample evidence that along the, along the lines of interests rather than ideology or policy, there have been different sources. And this perhaps, whether this goes into the tribal kind of complexities of the region, of which, of course, you know, you're the, ex the expert, I'm not, or the fact that a lot of these figures have developed different kind of interests and uh, they have access to different resources and different outlets uh, themselves. The leadership sitting in Doha has a very different lifestyle and they have developed a very different sort of uh, an incentive structure for themselves, especially if you look into the future as governors, as administrators. That may or may not be the case for the person who's fighting on the ground, even if right now, uh, you know, there is a sense of victory and that gives some degree of uh, cohesive effect. So again, I agree with you that, you know, the Taliban has to be taken seriously. I agree with your point that it is a force which, at least over the past three years, in my view, has been very cohesive. If you contrast it with the kind of lack of cohesion and the mismanagement and infighting and strife that has been hindering Kabul government itself. I mean, it's amazing how the president would not get along with the vice president. The president would not get along with, you know, President Ghani would not get along with Abdullah Abdullah and vice versa. There is a lot of infighting and incoherence in Kabul. If you contrast that with the Taliban's coherence, yes, no doubt Taliban is a, is a force to reckon with. But does that mean that when they come and start governing, the different interests within the pluralist Islamist ecosystem that you have identified would remain uh, settled or completely, you know, in equilibrium and, and some sort of harmony with each other. That's a question which I would be very cautious in, you know, taking at least as at this moment to reach a conclusion with, uh, given the fact that at different points in history, in kind of near history, we have seen very intense infighting within the Taliban. Um, I 
Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that it is open to debate and uh, your analysis is as uh, good as mine. And I think uh, it also just shows where the question marks are. I just want to clarify very briefly. Um, for me, factions would be that faction which actually really had split off the Taliban led by uh, Mullah Rasul and, and Niazi, which uh, uh, looked as if it could really be a challenge to the Taliban, but has more or less uh, disappeared uh, uh, from the scene, only able to pull off uh, small-scale uh, operations and so on, and, and also with signs that it has been manipulated uh, by the Afghan intelligence uh, community and so on. Um, I agree that there was a lot of infighting uh, over who would be the next leader after the death of Mullah Omar uh, became known. But for me, this is not factions. That's tribal networks. That's the interest is I want to run this uh, movement and not you. And, uh, and there was a lot of criticism of Akhtar Mansour uh, because he actually uh, kind of tribalized the Taliban leadership uh, again after they had made uh, progress of uh, integrating uh, people also from non-Pashtun uh, ethnic groups, but also from the diversity of uh, Pashtun large Pashtun tribes, uh, which are there. I think that has been un, uh, overcome uh, to an extent um, by the current uh, leadership and also, as you rightly point out, by that great success they just uh, see uh, not only at the horizon is much closer um, of, of being big, uh, back in power uh, in Afghanistan, that will also overpaint any conflicts of interest for the time being. And of course, we are just seeing a new chapter now opened in Afghanistan that the Americans and uh, others are leaving with their with their militaries. Um, um, the big game who will run Afghanistan uh, will still be open between Taliban and uh, the other factions. Right. This is this is a very uh, interesting debate, Avinash and Thomas. Thank you so much for 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 uh, unpacking the the different ways in which the Taliban and the various groupings operate within Afghanistan. But if we, if I can, for the interest of time, move on to a couple of questions that I really uh, must ask, you know, and one of them is about the the role of regional powers, right? We, we have been talking about Russia, about Iran, in, in the course of the conversation that we've had uh, for the last uh, several minutes. And Thomas, if you can highlight how these regional players are, are arranged on this checkerboard, if it, if it were, uh, in Afghanistan right now. And and again, the Taliban being quite central central to all of this, uh, how how does their involvement with the Taliban, along with other stakeholders uh, in the region, work out and 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 hopefully point towards uh, a stable Afghanistan in the coming years? Mm. Yeah, well, I, I would see uh, two points here. One is that uh, many of the regional powers. Uh, we're not really enthusiastic about uh, the Taliban's re-emergence and uh, getting into power again until the Islamic State uh, rose and they found out that they also can, uh, in a way, have a joint uh, or, or, or jointly operate against uh, IS. And then, um, of course, I mean that... Uh, the withdrawal of the U.S. and uh, other Western troops, and which will bring about also a decrease of attention in Western capitals uh, with respect to Afghanistan, busy with a lot of other problems, um, opens the way for 
uh, reactivation of uh, all the regional countries which are interested uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, actually, I mean, the 20 years of the U.S. intervention was the longest war the U.S. have uh, ever fought. Uh, but in history, it's a very short period, and uh, particularly regional relations uh, and the way how they play out. Thomas, do you see? Do you see any of these? Do you see any of these countries playing a, a larger-than-life role? I mean, uh, Iran gets talked about quite a bit. China gets talked about quite a bit. These are uh, China, for example, is not a player that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, the, the role of regional powers in Afghanistan. Uh, we were talking about other neighbors to the north, like Uzbekistan, uh, uh, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and the others. But uh, uh, there has been a certain change in 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 the in the players, right? Do you? Do you see any of these playing a very big role? Yeah, I think none of the, those countries, including China, will play a similar role to that U.S. have played over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, that's not in their interest. Uh, the Chinese uh, probably have learned much better than the U.S. Uh, had learned from the Soviet Kogmaya in uh, Afghanistan um, not to engage too much uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, their foreign policy is mainly... Uh, domestic economic uh, uh, policy, uh, getting access to resources they need for uh, the economic growth and so on. And for that, uh, Afghanistan is not really uh, in, in the center. We have seen that uh, with a failed uh, uh, with a failed enterprise, so to say, of, of China getting the copper mine in Ainak, southeast of Kabul, uh, running, uh, where the Chinese uh, apparently had overlooked that there's a tough conflict uh, ongoing exactly also in that in that area and they have uh, despite changes now in the foreign policy and how they describe their foreign policy in a much more active way i don't think that afghanistan is a central area of interest uh, for them and that brings us back to almost a kind of a historical uh, period where in afghanistan parts of the pakistani indian conflict is playing out the newer conflict between saudi arabia and iran is playing out um russian and chinese interest uh, not to have the americans uh, operating too successfully uh, in the region turkey trying to assert its role as a regional player um, and uh, not that visibly yet, uh, maybe also role of countries like Qatar and the uh, Emirates and so on, which then also is more or less determined from uh, the inner Arabian uh, conflict. So uh, everyone's kind of active in Afghanistan, but for none of them, Afghanistan actually is the top priority. And that will determine also uh, how many resources uh, they will uh, use for dealing with Afghanistan. Right, that actually sets me up for my final question to, to both of you. Thomas, I'll come to you first. If, if we take a step back and look at the bigger picture, where do you see the conflict between the Taliban and the Afghan government heading? And what will this situation mean for the security of the broader region? Thomas, if I can come to you first from that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of potential even for military escalation still in Afghanistan. I mean, we have seen uh, the probably highest intensity of fighting of the at least last 10, 12, 14 years in Afghanistan, uh, they're not uh, good uh, figures for the first years, uh, which also was intensive. Um, so that uh, will probably continue for a while also, uh, depending on how long the US will be able 
uh, to financially and uh, with hardware support uh, the Afghan government, the Afghan government forces, and uh, how easy it will be to to get it there. Um, I don't see the Taliban pushing over the government and their security forces when they continue to be supported that quickly. Although in the moment it, it almost looks like a, a domino what's happening in the, in, in the districts. But let's face it, I mean, there have been a couple of uh, important districts uh, which fell to the Taliban, but most of it was actually rural and the low hanging fruit, so to say. Um, it will be more difficult uh, to get uh, to take over the provincial capitals i mean smaller ones like lashkargah or kalianau and badris where the taliban full time being have been beaten back uh, apparently kunduz and so on which has changed hands a couple of times um that that also will not be uh, uh, that easy and and taking over kabul will be very very difficult so i think uh, if i were the taliban i would try it on the political way uh, probably even uh, continue to escalate the, the pressure and just bring Uh, all the factions in Kabul, including the government, uh, to negotiations and then make a deal how to share power for the time being until the cards then in the next round are probably again uh, spread or, or, or people are kicked out of the game probably, which we also have seen in earlier phases uh, of uh, the Afghan wars when uh, the Mujahideen, after the Mujahideen took over uh, in Kabul, for example. Right, right. Uh, Avinash, same question to you. What kind of a shadow of developments in Afghanistan are we going to see over the broader region and also India? Deep again, just we need, I think, to wait a little in terms of having some sort of clarity emerging from the battlefield. As Thomas said, you know, there uh, there has been a lot of uh, pressure that the Taliban has put on the government right now, the Kabul government, by going on an offensive and on a very well-timed offensive with the with the departure of the American troops. But these are offensives which have not translated into wins over demographic pockets, even if so, there are, they have demonstrated their capability in military parlance to be able to maneuver in areas, in rural areas. But that's a capability which was well known. That's a capability often that insurgents enjoy when they don't have the, the burden of controlling territory and governing people and the lives of people and you know having those kind of roles, even though they did have those kind of roles in some areas, not necessarily in, in population centers, so to say. And that is something that needs to be needs to be seen. But on that count, a lot also depends on psychological factors. And this is something which, uh, where I'm a little concerned given the initial kind of uh, things that have panned out in the past few, few weeks. The fact that Afghan National Security Forces, at least in North, did not put a fight sometimes for tactical reasons or were surrounded completely by Taliban and escaped or surrendered, that raises concerns about what if the people have psychologically kind of given up on the idea of the Republican camp ever being able to really deliver and accept the fate as and when a Taliban offensive comes. So this is perhaps what the Taliban leadership might also be hoping for, that instead of going for a very kind of brutal you know, head-on offensives in population centers, if they can put tactical kind of sieges around these capitals and then let people slowly kind of exhaust themselves, the forces exhaust themselves and accept the fear completely, so to say. That's something that might work out. 
whether there would be that kind of resistance, perhaps there is potential for resistance more in some areas, perhaps in Panjshir, where we know Ahmad Shah Massoud's son, Ahmad Massoud, with uh, uh, Amrullah Saleh, the current vice president, is working to mount some sort of a resistance. Whether the resistance in these population centers is coherent or not is an equally important question. Right now, uh, I haven't seen that kind of coherence develop. You know, it was never there in Kabul when, when you know, in the Kabul government. But even if all these people who have been part of the government go to their constituents and try to raise militias who will counter the Taliban, how long they last, what kind of support networks will they have to be able to, to mount resistance needs to be seen. I agree with Thomas, right? For Kabul will be very difficult for Taliban to take over uh, militarily for a variety of different reasons. And that's where a lot of people can kind, kind of come together to resist the Taliban onslaught. But other provincial capitals, I'm still unsure to what extent the resistance would be put up, even if it, if it, if it does come about. In terms of India and the region, I think this, in my view, is a very serious inflection point for India's Afghanistan policy. Again, you mentioned China, and I agree here that you know China may not necessarily come in a way or have that kind of larger-than-life role that the Americans have had, or in the past that the Soviet Union had. But let's not, you know, we must acknowledge the fact that China does have a land border with Afghanistan, even if a small remote corner of Wakhan, it's still something that we need to kind of accept. Yes, the Soviet Union did have joint borders too, but it was a different beast than, than the Chinese Communist Party. And China has increasingly over the past six years hinted its interests in in the economic kind of, in exploiting the mineral wealth or in exploiting the kind of opportunities, uh, economic opportunities that might be accrued uh, in, in Afghanistan. For that purpose, if it needs to get you know, copper, copper out of Iraq, if it needs to get you know, access to iron ore reserves or other kind of reserves, it needs accessibility, it needs infrastructure, it needs political stability. And that means if Beijing sees that stability being imparted by a Taliban regime, regardless of how it comes to power, it might take a call and double down on its support to the Taliban. A good instructive case here is how the, the, the how Beijing has doubled down on its support for the military junta uh, in Myanmar post-coup, after having very assiduously cultivating uh, its relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi over the past five, six years. So I don't think Beijing will have that kind of you know, uh, larger than life role in which it tries to mold Afghanistan in its own political worldview. But it certainly will have increasing interests. And that increasing interest would mean that Beijing would be delegating a lot of its Afghan policy to its ally, regional ally, which is Pakistan, which complicates India's lives, right? So then India's policy, Afghanistan policy, is not just about striking a balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan, as it has been since August 1947, it will be much more complex in terms of how do you ensure that Chinese influence remains limited. And on top of that, you have that kind of balance between Afghanistan and Pakistan that you've always sought. So I think these are really kind of, you know, it's an inflection point. And perhaps that's one reason why we see India accepting conversations with, uh, with the Taliban, someone with whom it has been the last country to ever talk to, even unofficially, right from 1994 when it got created. And uh, since when it has actually always, the Taliban has always been interested in talking to the Indians, but not vice versa. So I think this, this the, the severity of this change perhaps will be felt over time. 
But in, to my mind, there is no doubt that India is right now on a back foot and will have to kind of reposition itself uh, and very closely watch the situation on the ground if it is if, if it you know if it just wants to even prevent serious harm to its interests and its diplomatic presence on the ground, leave apart having serious influence in Afghanistan. Right. Uh, Thomas Avinash, thank you so much. There's there's so much more to talk about on this topic. Thank you so much for being with us today and for that very, very insightful discussion. Thank you. Many thanks for your invitation. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Steve. It's an honor to be here. That's all we have in this episode of Interpreting India. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.